Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, welcome everyone. Today we have with us Donald Fisher, who I worked with back at TypeSafe, now Lightbend. And I kind of hate that I always have to say TypeSafe, now Lightbend. Um, name changes are hard. But um, really enjoyed working with Donald. He was the interim CEO of TypeSafe for at least a couple of years, I think. Uh, and that was when you were with BlackRock. Is that right? Uh, Greylock. Greylock. Rock. Oh. Okay, different yeah. rock. So many rocks in the VC world, and so um, so it was super fun to work with Donald, and he really got the the foundation of that company going. And and um, so, anyways, now he's off to a new startup that he uh, co created or created. Are you the the formal? Co I have three co founders. Three co. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. So great to have you. Uh, tell us about Tidelift. Yeah, thanks for uh, the invitation to join, and uh, super excited to chat. Always excited to chat with uh, with you, James and uh, and Bruce. Great to, to to chat with you as well. Um, yeah, so Tidelift um, is sort of a, a mission oriented company. Um, our our stated mission is to make open source work better for everyone. And what we mean by that is both the um, uh, teams that build applications with open source software, as well as for the creators of open source software. We think there's really, you know, kind of almost obvious opportunity to align the interests of those two um, you know, participants in the open source phenomenon and unlock some potential for everybody to get some, uh, you know, to do better um, by working together and collaborating. So that's what we're about. Um, and uh, yeah, happy to get into as much details as you want in terms of how our approach works and, uh, and our perspective on things. So uh, I have a story, which is I have a friend who runs a hot dog stand in Crested Butte. And during COVID, I think there was one day when he just, he had way too many hot dogs and they were, I don't, he, he needed to get rid of them. So he decided to just give them away for this one day. And then people started sponsoring him. So every Saturday he gives away like 300 hot dogs. And, um, and it doesn't hurt him because he gets sponsored. So he's, and then people leave tips and stuff, but every once in a while, somebody will come up and get angry at him because he's not doing capitalism, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, they'll just, yeah, they'll go off on him because he shouldn't be giving away hot dogs. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter what he explains or anything. And I feel like there's some relationship to, you know, open source and, and, and what's happening. I mean, it's kind of a reverse thing because the open source developers are not getting paid and they're creating tremendous value. They're creating much more value than closed source programmers in general. And, and, and the closed source programmers, of course, are using a ton of open source in order to create their their programs. And I just find the whole thing so frustrating. And I've beat my head against the wall trying to come up with some different model that'll because what I want, I mean, my understanding is that what you're doing is you know, working on, okay, let's do maintenance, let's do, any, and there's the consulting model and all that kind of stuff. And I would really like to figure out a way that we can pay for the development, not just the maintenance of open source. So, and I'm sure you've thought of this, even though I don't think Tidelift works that way. Is that correct? Yeah, well, look, First of all, I love the hot dog story, and I thought you were going a different direction with it. I thought you were going to say that once you started giving away the hot dogs, all of a sudden, all the people who had been happy to pay for it came back and started complaining about all of the parts of the hot dogs that they didn't like. The bun seems a little stale, or you know, should have oh, had more ketchup on it. it. That was yeah, more similar to open source, huh? Yeah, yeah that's, so that's like the open source no, maintainer people, experience. You know, it's like you give this so gift to the world. They, they really, they just love, you know, and they're always surprised and, and they just, you know, they're just amazed that this thing is happening. But I think that's because they're face to face with him. And Maybe. whereas, you know, when you download some open source and it doesn't work right, you're just going software, it's not working right. You, you idiot, you should make it work right. And they're not conscious that, that this isn't a commercial product. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I, I think that, you know, unfortunately, the, uh, yeah, the open source uh, world is maybe less, less uh, 
um, enlightened than uh, the hot dog, face-to-face uh, -face hot dog vendor situation because, you know, like the, the so often, especially like maintainers of high scale, widely used open source components, you know, they, they do all this work typically um, not directly uh, compensated, especially in the sort of like application libraries, frameworks kind of world. Um, and then, you know, their reward is GitHub issues complaining, you know, this didn't work on my Commodore 64, or, you know, I disagree with this uh, technical decision over there. So it's sort of, uh, it's a strange form of, uh, you know, reciprocity operating there. Maybe we need to have a open source card uh, so we can get face to face. That's, uh, that's pretty, pretty, a pretty good uh, option. Perhaps some, uh, perhaps part of open source training should be uh, nonviolent communication. Cause not a bad it idea. Doesn't yeah. encourage, you know, if, if somebody is just complaining, I mean, there's underneath it, there's kind of a compliment. Well, I'm using your software. It's not as great as I want it to be. So there's a, you know, there's a compliment and a need underneath there. It's just expressed badly. It's because they're frustrated. I think you're also right that it, part of it is just the an, an animization of it, uh, how it's anonymous, right? And so it's sort of, I think it's um, lost on a lot of individuals and more so on organizations that most of the software that their applications are built out of is created by humans for not directly commercial reasons, right? For impact is typically the number one reason why we, you know, when we've gone and surveyed uh you know open source maintainers why do you do this why do you spend time giving this gift to the world typically what we have heard especially from this audience of the sort of you know application development libraries um that you know flow into into um, people's applications that they build um it's they like having impact on the world knowing that their creative work is is being used etc right and i think um so many organizations are used to more of the traditional vendor model where like, you know, the components used to flow in from Oracle or Microsoft or something like that, and they were all written there. And there's this more kind of, you know, commercial element to it. It's like, hey, I, I have a complaint about this thing. I don't, you know, I, I want to file a support ticket. And I've seen, you know, recently I, I saw on Twitter go around, you know, um, a, a maintainer of a widely used project. They got this big like procurement form sent to them from some a company saying like, we demand that you fill out this form talking about all the, you know, practices around your project. And the maintainer was just like, this doesn't even compute, you know, I, I, nobody, I'm not your, I didn't sign up to be your software supply chain, even if that's the reality. Um, you know, I'm like doing a creative effort over here and you're, you want me to fill out TPS reports. It's uh, it's kind of a broken, a broken mentality, but I think it, it mostly stems from a, a lack of understanding because it's kind of an amazing thing that it works, right. That, that the, that creative energy creates this um, set of technologies that then, you know, individuals, but also organizations and governments and everybody can, can build on and now is sort of dependent on. It's a gift economy. Oh, Except, like Burning Man, bringing, bringing it back to the Burning Man. Well, I mean, that, that, come, that goes back to, what is it, the potlatch Native Americans or something? Oh, you know, there I have didn't know been there gift, was a history even. Oh, yeah. Before. No, there, there have definitely been gift economies before Burning huh. Man. But, um, um, but the problem with that is that it's got to be reciprocal. It can't be, I'm giving you things and you take them. And you make a lot of money off of them, and you don't. The gifting share. has to be bidirectional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to yeah. make it work. Well, isn't so, that how Burning Man works? Is like, like I mean, it's you don't have to bring gifts, but it just kind of works that everyone. It's just a nice, you know, you, you encounter somebody and you want to give them something, and that's mm -hmm. it. It's not a There, there is no reciprocity built There's in. No it's expected. Just, yeah. You just, you know. You just give but the people, people that show up are generally want to give gifts to people. Well, that's how it works. It's like, oh, somebody gave something to me. I want to give something to somebody else. And so that's that's kind of what we end up with. But, it, you know, based on a, a traditionally, you know, traditional quote economy, um, there's just like, no, that doesn't make sense. You, It's a transaction. Whereas a gift economy isn't a transaction. Mm. It's just unidirectional. But hmm. if it's only ever unidirectional, it just takes the wind out of your sails. You just go, oh, if you're just taking and expecting, 
So yeah. here's an example um, that has always frustrated me. Apple, like richest company in the world or whatever, um, they so there's a tool to do um, installs. What is it called? Um, um, oh, brew. Brew, right? Yeah. Apple has. Ne I mean, that is an essential part of the ecosystem, and Apple's never given them any money. Yeah, I mean, for a long yeah. time it was um, uh, Bintray um, and uh, JFrog were the ones that mm -hmm. were funding all the like sig I don't know millions of dollars of downloads through Brew, and I don't know if they still do or not. But, but yeah, it was interesting how that how Brew found someone to sponsor it that wasn't Apple. But yeah, weird that it's so essential to the Apple ecosystem. And it, Apple wouldn't even notice. I mean. You know, it's, it's, yeah, anyway, that stuff like that just really bothers it, me. It, it is frustrating, right? Um, and, you know, the, the homebrew example is a, is a good, uh, is a good reference point. I mean, I, maybe going back to the, the gift economy idea, I actually think maybe that is an, ex, that, that is part of what explains why open source works as well as it does, right? Like there is an element of that that's sort of driving and like, baseline like open source works amazing right like it's it's i i am every day i wake up astounded that this is a thing that humans sort of organically started doing it's like an emergent phenomenon when you combine like you know uh the internet uh you know personal computers and uh optimistic people that they've uh and programmers you know that they this this thing happens um and i think probably some of those gift economy dynamics underlie it I think the challenge, though, is that it doesn't do everything that that doesn't um, drive incentives around everything that every participant in the system might want to have happen. And like go back to that example of the ridiculous procurement, you know, assurance report that was presented to the open source maintainer. Um, you know, it's like ridiculous to the open source maintainer to the organization that's making that request. No, they're actually serious, right? They're like, we're, uh, I don't know what it was, an insurance company or something like that. You know, they're like, they have customers that they have to take care of their data. Like they're trying to do the right thing as well, and right? Could, so could for them maybe be a compliance issue. Like maybe the a government is yeah, requiring I'm, this from them. Right. And yeah, I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're, they're, they're doing it for, for, for actually good reasons. It just kind of comes off kind mm -hmm. of weird when it gets projected through that channel. So, you know, that's like, that's where, um, you know, with, uh, with Tidelift, with, with our initiative and our company, we're trying to explore, hey, can we kind of expand the boundary of what gets done to give creators who want to, who would be interested in doing more, were there some additional incentives and guardrails and, and help uh, process and tool help? Um, would they be interested in, in, in doing more around their open source projects in order to you know, satisfy a demand that's coming from especially big organizations and governments and so on? who want to have more consistency of the sort of vetting that's happening around the open source that flows into their organization. And we think that's kind of like a, um, you know, it's like a, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a business uh, uh, opportunity that only has positive externalities. Like it's optional. So nobody is mandated to participate. And, you know, for the organizations that, you know, buy the, the service of vetted open source components that have been, you know, um, uh, you know, determined to meet certain security licensing and maintenance requirements, they're happy to pay for it, right? And for the open source maintainers that opt into the system, um, you know, the ones that opt in, they say, yeah, I'm interested in doing this. And, you know, because it's this is like part of the really boring part of uh, open source maintainership, I appreciate the incentive of, um, you know, some tools, some process help, and also some direct being able to participate in the value that I create, participating in the economics by getting paid to do some of this more tedious work around the open source projects. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, most of these companies, I, I suspect the idea of open source, even though we live and breathe the thing for them, it's like, wait a minute, a free thing that we, and they don't know, and they're used to paying for things and they have the money to pay for things, etc. And this is a relative, typically a relatively small amount of money that they're talking about compared to procuring, you know, regular software. And, um, 
but it's just like it doesn't fit in their model. And in a, in a huge number of ways, it doesn't fit in their model. So one of my previous mm-hmm. companies, we were trying to sponsor an open source project with a incredibly low sum of money. It was like a couple thousand dollars. And you would not believe the number of meetings and things that I had to go through just to give a couple thousand dollars to an open source project, like lawyers and accountants. And like it, and it was extremely hard because it's like, is this a donation? Like, should this go through the the foundation and not through, you know, it was, it was just so out of the ordinary to do that it was incredibly hard. It was wild. And who knows, maybe that is what's holding people back so much. It's like, no, this is too weird. We don't know how to do it. And it would take so much time. And if it's for $2,000, it's not worth it. If, if you make it $20,000, then, you know, the, the the amount could be too low. Right. Yeah. I, 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 James, you're reminding me of a uh, conversation I had a number of years ago with uh, a really senior person at a big tech company and in their um, uh, annual budget uh, spreadsheet, they had a row where I believe they were making a donate, uh, you know, a contribution to an open source foundation. And so they sent it in and the finance department, you know, sent the sheet back and they added a comment in that um, cell or that row, and the comment was "fraud?" question mark oh. And their their argument was, um, "Wait, so you want to just take our money, and, the company's money, and give it to your friends on the internet in exchange for nothing?" Right. That's actually fraud by our definition, and uh, you know, obviously, it was well intended and everything, but you kind of see their their point of view. So, yeah. I, I agree with both of those. Um, you know, there has to be some kind of ex- set of rails to, to to transact on. And at the heart of it is there has to be a very clear get in exchange for the expenditure to really make it feasible for most organizations to successfully engage. And that's, you know, we've really been um, exploring that um, frontier over the last couple of years at Tidelift. And we think that, you know, we, we know now because we see the market pull and our customer base is growing that we have a solution in that uh to that to that space and you know the way what we have found to work is we have a combination um uh service that has two pieces to it part of it is a software piece and part of it is a people piece right so the software piece is we've built a multi-tenant SaaS application that plugs into your devsecops or application development tool chain usually people start by plugging it in next to their ci tool that runs the tests on their code and what we basically do is we make sure that the third-party open source packages that are flowing into your app um, have been vetted to meet certain security licensing and maintenance standards, security standards like, you know, it doesn't have a known security vulnerability in it, but also proactive security standards like there is a defined security response policy in place for this project so that when inevitably things happen in the future, you know, it will be handled in a uh, deterministic way, right? Um, and like, you know, just clarity around open source licenses from and, and things like that. So that's sort of the software part of it. And people, you know, organizations are happy to pay for that assurance. Now, h- how do we get the that's facts? kind of like an uh, open source compliance, like, like yeah, we, the, in a large organization. We're increasingly there. calling it an open source supply chain management mm-hmm. tool yeah. or solution, right? So is this and a then, place where NFTs could come in handy if they need a thing? <laughs> No comment. Oh my god! (laughs) We haven't explored that frontier. So when the organization (laughs) says, "What are we buying here? You're buying an (laughs) NFT, an open source NFT. Get it? Yeah, okay. You know what? Somebody should try. Actually, I think they're you know to the extent NFTs is a is a real thing, which it may be. Yes, somebody should go explore that. Somebody's doing this now. They're like like they're doing NFTs based on the the Git commit SHA of open to open source, and I'll be interested to see how that plays out. I I think that 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 is likely to break our typical enterprise customers' (laughs) uh, brain even 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 more. But uh, so, and then just to complete, you know, sort of our 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 take on the on the thing is like, okay, so you have that tool, but. The problem with these tools historically, like the um, um, uh, uh, SCA tools, sort of like, you know, open source compliance tools, the big problem has been the garbage in, garbage out problem, right? Which is like, they're trying to enforce these policies and they're doing that by like, 
running a regex against uh, licenses.txt file and trying to assign like this is like Apache ish or, you know, there's all this really like messy stuff around um, mapping CVE vulnerabilities from the National Vulnerability Database to actual releases of actual packages in Maven Central or the Python package index or so on. So our, you know, innovation on that front is who is able to, uh, you know, address and vet these packages better than the actual open source maintainers of them. In many cases, the original creators or including the original creators of those packages. So that's the people part of our solution is we, we ask them, you know, help us vet that these packages meet these specific standards. Like all the CVEs have been mapped to the versions that are impacted. And, you know, there are proactive policies in place for how we're going to deal with new security vulnerabilities. Tell us what the, is the, is this license information actually complete? How do you know, uh, you know, because you were part of the team that you either wrote the code or you were, you know, present, you know, where that came from um, uh, and completely accurate uh, and, and comprehensive on the licensing front. And then one of the things that we ask, we ask, uh, uh, you know, the maintainers to help us to determine is like, is this actually uh, going to be proactively maintained into the future, right? Is this a deprecated release stream? Is the whole package uh, deprecated or, or uh, you know, abandoned? Um, if so, maybe there's an opportunity we can we can help bring some new maintainers to it, again, by creating an incentive for somebody, both a, um, you know, help incentive as well as a monetary incentive to go pick that up. So that's that's been the really fun and exciting part of um, Tidelift is bringing that human element in to complement the software. In combination, we've found that's a really compelling thing for organizations to go buy, pay money for, because the thing that they get in return is visibility and confidence in the third-party open source that's flowing into their applications. That has immediate business value. And now, you know, increasingly in light of recent events, it's becoming mandatory. It's becoming legally required, actually. I'm happy to talk about some of the recent developments <laughs> on that front. Yeah. Yeah, we made it 22 minutes without getting into log for shell. So I think it's time <laughs> to drop the log Let's for open shell. The Pandora's bomb. box. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think this is a good segue. So, so tell us, tell us about log for shell. Um, I know a little bit, but tried to ignore it because I'm like that just sounds uh, horrible and scary. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> give so, us I mean, the rundown. It, you know, it, it, it is, it, it's gross in some respects, but it also kind of calls a question that's been lingering for a while, which is kind of, you know, how did it, how did this actually work in the first place? Like, how did we expect this to, to all go smoothly in the first place? So, you know, I, I, I my, my synopsis would be, um, you know, the, the whole kerfuffle around what's been dubbed log for shell relates to a, actually a series of vulnerabilities in a awesome widely deployed, incredible, durable piece of software, uh, an Apache project called Log4j, where the maintainers have been putting in the effort for, I think, decades now on, uh, on Log4j. For, Log for um, and, you know, there was this um, particular um, exploit that was identified, uh, I believe at the timeline, it was in November, and then it sort of broke uh, publicly in, uh, in, in mid-December of 2021. And unfortunately, um, you know, because Log4j is such a great package and ha has such great capabilities, it's in almost every enterprise Java application or probably JVM platform application out there, right? Yeah. And this particular exploit, it like, was, you know, a huge, vast deployment, like surface, like it's it so is good. everywhere. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and, uh, well, and it's been around uh, for, for a long time. Yeah. As you said, and my and understanding then, um, was oh, that th the problem was that they had put an interpreter, they had an embedded an interpreter in Log4j, and so you could just throw any code at it and run it. Yeah, there was this, um, you know, the so-called um, remote um, co code execution attack possible because I think it like used like a JNDI interface to dynamically load some some code, and so you could put some stuff. Anyways, the, that's the the real, you know, that's why I think it became a front page of the Wa Washington Post uh, class event because is deployed everywhere and it was, um, you know, so um, uh, straightforward to um, attack. And what it resulted in is being able to load and execute arbitrary uh, code from the internet with the privileges of the of the host uh, process. 
actually, I, one of the subplots of the whole thing is my understanding is a lot of the early exploits were uh, came out of the world of uh, Minecraft, which is a JVM, uh, you know, platform uh, huh. uh, gaming world. And that, that the initial exploits were actually for like, you know, doing stuff in, in Minecraft, but then it got weaponized pretty quickly um, huh. and, and started seeing exploits all over games it's like yeah. that's like people cheating in games is like driving some percentage of security research yeah exactly um, yeah so i think the the mechanics of the vulnerability were interesting like like being able to essentially just do anything you want by uh, if if some user input was being logged through log4j then you could do anything on the system and that is pretty darn scary for the and and it being in so many legacy systems i think one of the interesting things about this is that when we think about solving some of these issues we think about solving it with today's technology where you know how sort how source code gets to production <laughs> and you can you can then go in and patch that pipeline you know patch first know all right this production system has this vulnerability and so now we know how to ship a new release with the fixed version of it but i think one of the things that's scariest with log for shell is that so much of the usage of log for shell is not doesn't exist in that modern world where we know how we know what's running in production and we know how to update it because there's just so much enterprise software out there where it's like some developer on their machine creates a new war file and FTPs it to some place. And, you know, like there's just so much and, and we don't have the bill of materials, uh, the bomb, S-bomb, whatever that, that tells us what's actually running in production. And so there's just all these instances with log for shell. It's like we have no idea what systems are actually vulnerable to this because, yeah, I mean because they existed pre build pipeline pre bomb pre all this stuff yeah i think you're completely right i mean and that's been the 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 immediate scramble in most organizations that i've talked to was just find all the places where we're using log4j and many times it's like a russian nested doll right where it's like inside a war file inside another payload inside a container image inside a repository somewhere and so you know that was the initial scramble that we that we saw um and you know honestly a lot of organizations are still scrambling on this front um yeah. you know uh, a, a solid month month later a lot of great folks lost first a weekend and then a lot of folks i've heard lost their holidays the majority of their holidays just going and trying to do this um archaeological dig to find all the places where the vulnerable log4j um versions are um so you know that sort of gets to one of the opportunities going forward is like try to track all of those components the the first place where it's um you know i think most feasible to do that is you know, in the software that your own organization creates, where at least you you see the, the the security or the application development pipeline, and you can instrument that. That's actually part of what you know the, the Tidelift solution does. Is you know we have a tool there that keeps track of what went into every build that gets goes through your pipeline. And so you know, for our customers that had already rolled out our solution, and you know we're not the only solution, but you know uh, our solution, when the when the vulnerable log4j issue broke, they were able to just type log4j into their the Tidelift app and they could see all the builds historically where that version had gone and they had a roadmap. Um, now that's, um, most organizations don't even have that for the applications that they're building themselves, right? There's an opportunity to do that. Then the really hard question is what about all of the third party, you know, package software that you're, you're yeah. um, acquiring? That is, you know, also majority third party open source components under the hood. And that's where this whole conversation around software bills and material comes in um, and the sort of always providing the, the requirement or mandate to always provide an ingredient list with um, your your software application, even if you're you know uh, selling it as a whole solution to another to another party. Yeah. So I have a question about um, do you know how? I guess I want to know how this thing happened because it seems like the idea of putting, call it an interpreter in there that can run any code 
would jump out at you as, oh, maybe for debugging we'll have this in, but we don't want this in productions code. But you know, how did it? Get <laughs> so when you left do the archaeological it? dig and you're like, hmm, why why was this ever there? What what's been discovered on that front? Yeah. My understanding, my understanding, I, I, I don't know all of the details of this, but my general understanding is that the reason why this particular interface still existed was that actually that there were enterprise customers that relied on this. Someone somewhere was using this. Someone was using it and it would have broken their workflow to turn this thing off. And I believe in the historical record, there's, there's, there was a, a, uh, attempt to uh, at least disable this by default, if not remove this uh, capability from the um, from from the project. And it was, you know, it was rebuffed because, you know, somebody relied on that on that on that behavior. I believe that's the that's the, the story. That's the general shape of the story that I've understood, which is, you know, gets at the point. That's another example of how hard it is to be an, in, an independent open source maintainer. You're trying to trade off you know, somebody really depends on it, but, you know, it kind of presents a risk to everybody else who uses this and doesn't depend on it. You know, those are really hard um, trade-offs that we just default to relying on independent open source maintainers to make. And by the way, you know, a priori, we tend not to have done anything to help them or support them yeah. uh, for that, for, for doing that, carrying that heavy lift. I mean, it gets to like how there's much more involved in in, in uh, being a maintainer of an open source project than just writing code, right? You're also a judge and a jury and uh, I don't know, uh, a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the other scary element to this is that there's there's no way that this is the, the last time that we see this kind of vulnerability happen. It seems like this is just going to become much more of the norm because the surface area is so massive now for op for open source usage across the world. And so, so we're going to see another log for shell, shell probably in the next three to six months. And, and um, now the security researchers and, and hackers are, you know, I think, more invigorated to find these kinds of things. And so, um, so they'll find them. And... And uh, yeah, so how do how do we like foundationally address some of the the challenges around this? Like, uh, is there a world where where vendor uh, people that are consuming open source better fund the security research themselves so that so that they're finding these things ahead of the hackers finding them and that sort of thing? I don't know. What's what's yeah, your I thoughts mean, on that? Like. I think that's I think that's where it goes, right? Is um, so. What do you need? Okay, once this log for shell thing has happened, and you know that felt bad. Um, first, first order business is like, okay, we got to deal with this fire that we have right now, and then like, let's how can we install like Prepare a sprinkler the system the or predictions uh, that we've built? Yeah, on. let's let's have a fire department or something like that, right? right. So, um, I actually think you know our perspective, Tyler's perspective in the work that we're doing kind of bears on both halves of that. So on the incident response issue, um, you know, for organizations that have, you know, like used our tool or other tools to instrument and have a software bill of materials, they can respond much more quickly because they can find the hotspots, right? They can go and they see the fire in the walls and they can go pour water on it, right? So that's part of the solution. But then part of the solution is like, you know, let's use fireproof materials or let's have a fire lab that's like seeing if couches are super flammable or something ahead of time. That's the point of, you know, how can we address these things upstream? And, you know, again, part of our model is we, um, in addition to providing these tools to um, organizations that are consuming open source, we also have this paid relationship with open source maintainers where we ask them to do things. And the, the early things, the first things that we've done are the basic hygiene items like help us map the security vulnerabilities to the impacted um, versions of the packages and help us with the license information. But, you know, the more um, incentive that we provide there, including in the form of monetary compensation, the more we can ask those open source maintainers to do like, hey, run this static analysis tool or, you know, a, a fuzzer tool to, you know, um, uh, try random inputs into your APIs and, there's all kinds of security practices that could be done for almost any open source pa package, 
but you know, in some of them they are, but it's not systematically done across all of them. So we think part of the solution is, you know, by including those open source maintainers and giving them a, you know, a, a good incentive to do that, um, we can we can incur, we can trigger specific um, preventative activities to be taken. And there's also the spillover effect, which is like the more income that o- independent open source maintainers can derive from their open source work, the more time they can kind of spend on it in general, right? And uh, prioritize that versus, you know, maybe their day job or leisure time or whatever else they, they have on their plate. Um, you know, they can spend more time on it. We think that that will, on the margin, help head off more of these issues in the future. Is it going to complete, is everything going to be fireproof forever going forward? No, um, nobody wants to live in a uh, asbestos, purely asbestos world, right? But, you know, there are things that we can do in a sort of, in sort of a measured approach, I believe. So do you also try and provide the tools for, you know, testing the security for people? Because it seems like that would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, that's that's where we're going is we're, we try to show up with both, you know, monetary um, incentives and then also, you know, a list of things to be done. But then we try to help. Right. Uh, so like an example is. You know, one of the really painful things about the Log4j incident um, or this Log4j vulnerability, the one that's called Log4Shell, is that um, there was a there was not a um, my understanding is that there was not a complete responsible disclosure uh, process followed in advance of it sort of breaking wide open on the Internet. There's my understanding from reading some of the, you know, um, uh, 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 press around this. is that you know there was the uh, log4j team was notified in november i think it was a team at alibaba and it kind of didn't get there was not a cve assigned for it you know before it sort of was became widely known on the internet so um just having more um pre-wired predefined process in place for what is going to happen i mean it's it's a simple technology right it's not like a fancy code analysis thing but just having that is a is a useful thing and you know, when we onboard new projects to be part of the Tidelift maintainer network, we ask them, do you already have a security response plan and policy and mechanism in place? If they don't, then we have a default one that they can sign up for where we, we will help with the CV creation and the security response, um, uh, um, you know, activities. Um, I mean, if you're, you know, my, my history is, as James know, knows, um, myself and actually all, all three of my co-founders, we spent time at Red Hat in the um, you know, early days of enterprise Linux there. This is one of the things that internal Red Hat maintainers have support with. Uh, there's a security response team that helps you when a new CVE breaks to coordinate, you know, responding to it, you know, also you know, writing it up and going through the responsible disclosure. That's an opportunity where independent open source maintainers typically don't have that service bureau to rely on. They don't have a partner to rely on. Um, that's one of the things that we're, you know, we're advancing the state of the art on with, uh, with, with Tidelift. So is there a minimum size for a project that you will, cause I, I mean, you know, some of the JavaScript, uh, utilities can be very small. Yeah. Well, no, because it, it doesn't solve the problem if there is, right? Like, you know, the, there's the notorious left pad incident, right? The <laughs> yeah. uh, JavaScript library that just adds, uh, uh, you know, uh, space white space on the, left, uh, yeah. on the left side of a string. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, in, in a sense, a trivial uh, package, right? Uh, you know, almost kind of like, you know, people make a joke out of it. But when it was used uh, transitively left by like thousands, hundreds of thousands of projects, yeah, it was or used something. everywhere as a transitive dependency. And when it got pulled, there was a, you know an incident where the maintainer was frustrated, pulled it from the npm repository. The internet broke. So the reality is that even this, these little tiny things have this asymmetric um, risk profile, right? Um, Log4j as well. Like a lot of people never they kind of started take, taking log4j for granted right uh java developers jvm developers it's kind of everywhere you know it's pretty battle tested you don't think about it that much but then you know when this issue broke it ended up you know taking over people's holidays and uh you know losing engineering the XKCD comic is just of... perfect for for this the one with the blocks and the one little block maintained by some person in cincinnati on their evenings and weekends or whatever 
it's exactly right. Yeah, I know the one you're I know the one you're talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, it gets it gets to the challenge, and and that's why it's so hard for organizations to, you know, address this problem. It's it's actually not a problem of they, you know, it 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 would be wrong to say to state the problem as we need support for left pad. Like that's not actually the problem, and 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 they can't. You know, again, it's another thing that that organizations are not equipped to go sign up. 10,000 different support policy, you know, uh, uh, subscriptions or contracts for all of their 10,000 dependencies that are constantly evolving. They need help governing the whole thing. And that help is, we think it needs both like automation and software, as well as humans who actually know the ground truth about the history of these things and can impact the future of these projects as well. Yeah. I mean, if you think you're a startup today and you um, are building something with software the number of lines of code and number of people that you depend on from open source is just astronomical. Like everything from the operating system to the languages, to the frameworks, to the, like all of the pieces that you are depending on. I, you, you can't, you probably can't ship anything today without having had depended on a thousand developers that you don't know and hundreds of thousands of lines of code, millions of lines of code. Like, I mean, everyone's using Linux and containers and programming. Like, like like we're talking about probably hundreds of millions of lines of code that you are dependent on just to ship any piece of software today. It's pretty astronomical. The scale that we're at today. Completely different economy than we've ever encountered before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's so incredible, the, right? I mean, that's the thing. Like the, the thing that I always have to come back to is, you know, especially from vendors in this space, you know, you get a lot of doom and gloom, and you know, like in the in the beginning of uh, you know open source management tools, it was like, do you have the? Are you infected with the open source? You know, that was sort of like the posture of it or the energy behind it, and it's just completely the wrong way to approach the the reality of this, right? The reality long- is. Open source is amazing. We got to find ways to make it even amazinger, right? Uh, yeah, yes. That's that's the big opportunity, I think, for businesses and organizations and individuals around open source. Like, what, yeah, what let's year make was, it even uh, better. What year was Cathedral and Bazaar written? Oh, gosh. 80, 70s or 80s? Oh, I thought it was so, later than that. Maybe I thought it was the 90s. 90s, 90s. No, because I remember Eric 1999 Raymond. is what... Yeah, what? that sounds right. Because Eric Raymond said he he, he I mean, was that... annoyed with me at one point because I had started giving away Thinking in Java, and he's going, "No, no, I was the first one to give away a book free on the internet." He he was. Huh. He, I I wasn't competing, yeah. but I remember him saying that 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 was, you know. So apparently, I was number two. So it seems like ancient history that we lived in a world where that book could exist. But it really wasn't that long ago, 23 years ago, you're saying? Is that right? Like, yeah. it seems like it was 100 years ago that, and the world is so different in 23 years, just how dependent we are. So I wanted to talk for a second about the the incentives for maintainers. So one of the issues that I see with, with that model is that many people, their employer will not really let them get paid to work on open source and yet provide a lot of open source. Like, how do you, how do we deal with that? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways that we've, um, you know, just by going out and trying it, you know, do, um, uh, just getting started, I think has been a huge, uh, you know, way that we, we figured this out. So, um, you know, if there's, there are some employers, which I think is kind of a retrograde motion, actually, for employers to prohibit, you know, any kind of creative activities uh, or commercial side activities. It's kind of going, going, uh, uh, decreasing in uh, popularity, I hope, going forward. But in those cases, we can do things like um, attract net new maintainers to a project, right? Um, and our experience with Tidelift has been every time that we've gone to a uh, independent open source maintainer and said, um, hey, would you like to get paid to, um, you know, do these additional, assure these additional um, standards for your project? When they say, oh, sorry, my, my employer won't allow me to do it. If we then come back and say, would you be okay with us paying somebody else to help verify these standards for the yeah. project and sort of join as a co-maintainer? That's we cool. have a hundred percent take rate on that, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, this is like, it's again, 
we're talking about the boring stuff that nobody wants yeah. to do by default, right? So if, it's like, can I pay somebody to come and paint your fence uh, for you? Yeah, I so, mean, I mean people could have a job just just being these paid maintainers of projects that they didn't create or maybe you know weren't any part of the original founding team for, but Indeed. they could get paid to be a maintainer on it. Yep, and uh, you know, so, that, cool. so that's sort of one 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 uh, framing. Another thing that we've been working on over um, the last couple of quarters actually has been working with some of our partner maintainers to look after not just their core projects, but some of the adjacent projects, like their first level dependencies or the packages that depend on them, where they have some both um, technical awareness, but also sort of like social uh, contact with those um, packages. Oftentimes they're sort of like, you know, either like co-maintainers or sort of like semi-maintainers, uh, pseudo-maintainers of those. And so that's sort of like a neighborhood watch approach. And that actually has been um, easier for us to, to, to um, facilitate because we've taken some of the tools that we've built for the organizational consumers of open source, and we can use those to, and you know, which is all the, the conversation is all about, like, how do I manage this pile of open source? We can also provide that tooling to open source maintainers who also have a pile of open source. They have their package and then all the ones that they're dependent on. So there's some some really cool stuff that we're doing there with sort of like a neighbor, neighborhood watch model where... Um, especially when it comes to um, vetting, verifying kind of metadata about packages, which is, you know, again, where a lot of this comes down to having a superior solution, avoiding the garbage in garbage out problem. That's another lever, lever that we can, that we can apply there. Hmm. That's cool. So my friend, our friend, Bill Venners, one of the ways that he maintains a Scala test is um well his wife is malaysian so he spent time there and he met in one of his trips long ago he met this young man who was really sharp and of course whenever you offshore it's like you never know what you're getting unless you have like some personal experience with them and he's been using this guy for uh, a long time and he's able to pay I mean it doesn't cost Bill a huge amount but he's able to pay him more than he'd get by being a programmer in his country so it's like a complete win-win situation and it seems like for some of the projects that you're talking about that might be a resource you know uh, good yeah. offshoring <laughs> yeah well and some people are self-offshoring right like so a couple of right. our you know maintainers uh, have opted into living in low cost geographies specifically mm. because they want to be able to be full-time open source maintainers, wow, that's um, which a is a really cool, really cool model. Um, and, you know, but in the fullness of time, it shouldn't be necessary, right? Like if you just think about how much value are these folks creating and how valuable is the going through doing these additional boring parts for so many big organizations that rely on this stuff. I mean, third-party open source software is typically we see about 70% of the application code in almost every enterprise. There's a lot of value there. And so, you know, our end game is that we don't want to just, um, you know, uh, people talk about open source sustainability, like, will they starve? Will the open source maintainers starve? We think the end game should be open source maintainer maintainership should be like a celebrity, you know, they should be rich, right? They should, uh, um, you know, it's, you know, like uh, uh, movie stars or, you know, in technology closer to home, creator economies like uh, TikTok stars, YouTube creators, you know, the, the, the real, the stars on those platforms are making millions of dollars a year for their creative work. Absolutely. To me, it's, it seems much easier to justify why open source maintainers and creators should be able to make, get rich doing, doing uh, this kind of work because it directly um, contributes to economic value um, for every organization that builds software of any kind. So that's sort of our part of the mind shift. And end game. Like yeah. the mind shift that we need to go through as an industry is that our maybe capitalistic uh, way of thinking says that the value of something is what they charge for it, and that's our that's the way that we we typically think about what value is. But as you're saying, open source has a ton of value. It's just that our we're not used to quantifying it or thinking about it in in a way because it doesn't have a price tag. Yeah, and so if we can if we can um, find the opportunity, my opinion, if we can find the opportunities for additional um, 
you know, attributes that the software could have uh, that would have to be paid for, that's a way to sort of unlock that opportunity, right? And so the, you know, what we focused on is the combination of tools to ensure that you're consuming this, uh, uh, you know, vetted open source components to objective standards, and then the partnership of those independent open source maintainers to do, again, boring, tedious, a lot of it is sort of like data accounting style work um, to provide clean data as an input to that process. The combination of the software and the human parts is something that's really valuable to these organizations. And, you know, part of, I think, you know, we got started early. We've been working on this for a number of years at Tidelift, the open source software supply chain challenge. And, you know, in the early years, a lot of folks kind of looked at me and they said, you know, it's kind of, I, I get it. Yeah, I could see why that would be a, a, an issue, but it kind of hasn't been a problem yet. You know, like, I don't know, we mm-hmm. use this stuff and, uh, you know, but now increasingly it has been a problem, right? Like log yeah. shell was a problem for every organization that uses uh, Java in their application development. And then even more recently, you know, like a really, uh, I think, um, important uh, new development that um, has happened just two weeks ago the um, U.S. Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, came out with a very, very blunt um, statement uh, warning uh, all commercial organizations that they need to pay attention to specifically this. I mean, they, they put out a statement. They said um, the duty to take reasonable steps to mitigate known software vulnerabilities implicates laws, including the FTC Act and the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. That's the Data Privacy Consumer Data Privacy Act. They talk about um, the specific example of Equifax. Remember the Equifax mm-hmm. breach? That's was, actually uh, relating to struts, an open source right? yeah, Apache Struts project. Yeah. In that case, it was a known vulnerability that had been re- disclosed and you know had not had not been patched and was able to be exploited. And the FTC they point to the fact that FT, Equifax um, ended up with a seven hundred million dollar settlement, um, and then they the FTC concludes this uh, you know. Uh, 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 advice advisory that they put out um, two weeks ago. They say the FTC intends to use its full legal authority to pursue companies that fail to take reasonable steps to protect consumer data from exposure as a result of Log4j or similar known vulnerabilities in the future. So it's like it's not theoretical anymore, right? I mean, th- this is legal. Literally, the U.S. federal government saying. Businesses con- conducting, you know, uh, selling services and products in the U.S., we are going to hold you accountable for data privacy issues that arise from not having taking reasonable precautions uh, against this this kind of uh, this kind of vulnerability and this kind of issue. Um, what are reasonable precautions? I think that's what we've been t- talking about for the last hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that mean? What does that look like in the future? But, but yeah, I think I think. Open source traditionally has been viewed as this, this free hot dog, and uh, now we're transitioning to, oh, it's not the it's not the free hot dog that I thought it was anymore. I need to actually um, have some ownership over how I'm consuming this stuff and how I'm making sure that it is maintained and secure and all that. And by the way, the USDA dog. food inspector just pulled up in front of the in front of the hot dog stand, right? <laughs> That's it. The hot dog metaphor, uh, I think, falls apart a little bit because because you eat your hot dog and 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 that's kind of it. But with with open source software, like that, any hot dog that you eat is part of your life forever. <laughs> you are what you eat. Yeah, in both circumstances. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It seems like it seems like we are headed in a better direction in terms of how we, how we manage this, this problem and how we ultimately, does it come down to reducing risk for open source consumers? And, and that's the driving function of this. I think it's just about balance, right? So like, again, the, the, the first order of business with open source, why it's been so successful is it's about creating opportunity for everybody, right? Um, and especially the consumers of open source, this amazing opportunity to get all this technology. So that's the, that's the, the core of it. Now, it just needs to be done responsibly, right? Like the FTC says, take reasonable steps. What is reasonable? Well, just burying your head in the sand and hoping that there's never going to be a security vulnerability in thousands of packages that you use, uh, a critical security vulnerability. 
that's not responsible. It's ignorant, right? Like software has vulnerabilities. They get discovered over time. It doesn't, I mean, I guess there are some, you know, theorem prover systems and so on that, uh, but that's not, that's not mainstream software that people are building with, uh, building applications with today in most domains. And so, you know, we just have, we need a balanced approach that provides for that opportunity and upside, but, you know, takes some reasonable measures to mitigate obvious risk that comes along with it. We shouldn't get too over-focused on the risk element of it because, again, it's so incredible, you know, that, that this all exists to begin with. So we should celebrate that, but we should also be realistic and say, you know, we have to be responsible in the way that we apply it and also responsible in the way that we partner with those open source creators and find ways to, you know, work with them to get to a better outcome for everybody, not just for the downstream consumers. One of the metaphors that I think about with this is the organic brand. And I don't have a, my understanding of this may be a little off, but the way that I understand it is that for something to use the organic label on their food, they, they have to pay money to an organization that owns that brand. And then that organization makes sure that, that they are complying with a variety of organic standards in order to label something as organic. But it, but it was, it was a little bit of a chicken and egg because the consumer had to want the organic brand in order for that brand to have value for then for the organization behind organic to be able to, you know, have the guarantees of what organic means. And, but I, I kind of see a, a future of open source where we go looking for some assurances and maybe that's a brand like organic or whatever it may be, but, we want to be conveyed some uh, some things that the the main that it's going to be maintained that it's going to have security uh, a security process behind it you know all those things that um, yeah similar to I what mean, the I, organic I brand an, has the organic one is an interesting one and, e- and even maybe even more on point now uh, example would be like the underwriters laboratory certification that you see when you buy like. Uh, an electrical project, a product, you know, like on the wire, the, the plug. Oh, I don't know. Anything about that. I, I know you're talking oh, about that. Yeah, been, there's the little uh, label, Like I remember growing up seeing that tag, you know, that's been around yeah. forever. And, you know, I, I'm not a scholar on, on underwriters laboratory, but my like consumer uh, sense for that is that that's basically, you know, it's like a, a testing lab, I think, where they like take the, you know, the appliance and they, do some stuff and they see does it like burst into flame when you plug it in you know is the insulation reasonable huh. and i i guess my 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 understanding of how that works is the federal government doesn't say you must pay underwriters laboratory i think probably it's you know you have to take reasonable steps to ensure that your uh products and appliances that you make are not dangerous and a very reasonable step that you could take is to you know, pay underwriters pay laboratory to, to do yeah. a sort of independent analysis of it and vet it. So I think maybe that's another example we can look to for patterns. Huh. And, uh, you know, it's going again, it's going from, I like to eat healthy. I'm looking for the organic label to like, you know, I need, I, the government says I have to be responsible in offering my products and services. Where is a place that I can go to get some objective, uh, you know, uh, opinions or, um, evidence to, to, to demonstrate that I am being responsible in my activities. Huh. Yeah. And, and being pushed through the, the commercial side of things. Cause it's, it's not the maintainers who, you know, the open source creators who, um, hopefully we don't ever have legislation that says to release open source, you must do these things. Like that would be, I think the wrong way to do it, but from the, yeah, then we would have ruined, we would have ruined the opportunity, but yeah, the, the, the cool thing is uh, that there's we can pull it from the other end and say, like, you know, open source gets created for all these great reasons. And that's a that's an amazing thing to celebrate. And there's demand, there's market commercial demand for even additional assurances on top of that. Um, what are new ways that we can unlock that? Look, it's not like totally novel, right? Like Red Hat and did that, you know, 20 years ago. Lots of open source companies have built really high scale businesses around providing additional kinds of services and assurances around open source. This particular universe of tens of thousands of you know open source packages, including left pads and log for js and show, so on, I think it it demands new fresh approaches and uh, you know business models to figure out how to 
add the right kind of um, assurances around those. And that's the opportunity. You know, Tidelift, I'm, I'm glad to say, is part of it. We're innovating it. We're not going to solve the whole thing. I think we need the NFT approaches <laughs> and the, you know, whatever weird crypto <laughs> approaches and, you know, a bunch of different folks. But, you know, that's the marketplace will help find, you know, good solutions that, that provide a, a, a positive outcome for everybody in, in the system, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And the foundations, I think, have played part foundations of play a role yeah. for sure. Yeah, well, I, it's an exciting future. I like, like I think Bruce said, the world that we live in is so much better than the world we had before, and there's some improvements we can make to it. But I'm so thankful that I can just like pull the work of tens of thousands of people to my machine and have such high productivity. Like it's an amazing thing that we have this huge, vast open source. Uh, universe that we get to to build on top of well and y'all are open source creators as well right so thank you for the work that you (laughs) that you do there i mean james i've seen your projects and efforts and so uh you know that's also like another uh beautiful part of the system is when you can be both a consumer and a creator and almost every open source creator is a consumer of other open source as well right right? Uh, probably 100 percent so well i don't just thank you for thanks for thanks for what you do uh for open source and uh, have done in uh, in open source uh before yeah it's fun i think it's i think one of the cool things about being an open source contributor is there is this like creative energy that you get to you get to create something that people maybe use and yeah. it's it's it it's a very fulfilling thing to be able to do that indeed awesome. bruce any final thoughts nope all out <laughs> Well, Donald, thank you so much. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks for all you do with uh, making open source work better. And um, yeah, it's it's an exciting future. So thanks for joining us on our podcast. Yeah, super fun to do it. Thanks again for the invitation. And uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for putting your creative efforts into into this outlet as well. It's awful, awful fun to uh, to listen to the podcast.